Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Is there any evidence for God or Jesus? This topic is rather important in many ways. For someone who believes, like myself, it's important for helping other people understand both what I believe and how I've come to that belief. Conversely, on the other side, for people who don't believe, this is a powerful question as far as trying to either refute someone's beliefs or trying to understand. How can someone arrive at a faith when it doesn't seem like there should be evidence for it? In a very similar note, societally speaking, we are also wrestling with this question to try and understand how we as people who are in the midst of a society with many different beliefs and different understandings of the world come to a consensus or an agreement on how to function as people. So to give you a sense of where I'm going with this podcast and to help direct your minds to this very important question... I'm going to take the question apart piece by piece and let us evaluate and explore the implications of this question, starting with evidence. What is evidence? How do we use it? How is it useful to us? And then once we conclude the section on evidence, I want to talk about the power of proof and proving. What does it mean to prove? What are thresholds of proof? And lastly, bring all of this together to try and get at an answer to this question, a way of understanding it more fully. So let's start out. Evidence. What do we mean by evidence? Evidence is information that supports a conclusion or idea. This definition has two key elements to it that are worth exploring in more detail. Evidence is directly tied to a conclusion or idea that the person wants to prove. Evidence is always in relation to a conclusion, hence it is always evidence for. The second key element is that evidence is information. Thus, evidence comes in many forms, witnesses, situations, experience, reasoned arguments, and experiments. For the remainder of this section, I want to examine each of these types of evidence and indicate whether each one is useful for indicating whether God or Jesus could exist. Witnesses. The power of witnesses is both rather useful and rather limited. Studies regarding the accuracy of eyewitness accounts indicate that eyewitnesses of an event are about 60% accurate. For every five witnesses of a common event, two will have a different account of the same event. This study shows that the drawbacks of eyewitness accounts. Similarly, eyewitnesses will tend to forget details, embellish details, conform details to their own worldview, and even change details. All of these activities hinder our ability to accurately determine what happened. This difficulty leads us into the positive side of witnesses. Regardless of their accuracy, witnesses always indicate that something happened. This something that happened is much harder to dismiss, especially when their experience is repeated or, conversely, completely out of the norm. The other advantage of witnesses is is a great number of witnesses can testify to a situation. This issue of 60% accuracy causes problems in a situation that only has a few witnesses. But if the situation has 100, 500, or even 1,000 witnesses, the alterations of the original account due to individual persons' experiences 
are mitigated and help us determine what really happened. Numbers are the power of witnesses. The challenge with witnesses and God is twofold. First, God cannot be seen, heard, or touched. Therefore, he cannot be witnessed in that way. Second, anyone who witnesses to God will tell an experience of him that we simply have to accept as the person's experience. It's hard to determine the concrete actions that happened. Therefore, any person witness, persons who witnesses to God usually gets limited to a person and individualistic interpretation of an event. Conversely, if a thousand people witness that these people have all experienced God, what do we do with that information? We will return to this question later. Jesus is a little bit different. Jesus can be seen, felt, and heard since he is human. Since these senses are able to detect him, we can accept eyewitness accounts that Jesus did exist. The challenge that most people bring to the conversation about witnesses regarding Jesus is not about his existence, but the events of his life. Lastly, Jesus had eyewitnesses attested by, to by both Roman historians and people. What credibility do we give to these ancient writers? Situations. Situations are much like witnesses. The one major difference is that a situation does not necessarily need a witness. For example, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around, but then someone walks into the forest and sees a fallen tree, we assume that the tree fell. The act of the tree falling has no witnesses, but we would all agree from the evidence given in the situation that the tree fell. Much like the situation with the accuracy of witnesses, situational evidence is even more inaccurate. Our goal in using situational evidence, like a car crash, is to determine from the surrounding physical evidence what happened, which is always a best-guess scenario. The one thing that we can declare from situational evidence is that something happened. How does situational evidence apply to God and Jesus? Since we can never see the actions of God as though he is visibly present and doing them in front of us, we need to infer a cause from the evidence given in a situation. The only way that situational evidence works for indicating God is if there is no known cause for a situation to happen outside of God. I call this the cop-out evidence. Basically, we have no other reasonable explanation, therefore God. Honestly, no one likes the, the, this use of situational evidence, unless it is really clearly not normal. The only example that I can think of where this applies is miracles. Miracles work in this situation because they are beyond the ordinary. Not only can no other cause be attributed, but no normal cause makes sense. Although for many people this seems like a strange use of evidence, I want to point out that this form of argumentation is a core of statistical analysis, which determines all experimental findings. The statistical analysis approach begins by setting up a hypothesis which is tested against the null hypothesis. Usually the hypothesis is that something significant happened, and the null hypothesis is that nothing significant happened. In our situation, if the hypothesis is that there is a natural explanation for the situation, but then we cannot find any evidence for a natural explanation, then, by statistical standards, we are to accept the hypothesis that something non-natural happened. Jesus is a little trickier. Since he is no longer physically present on this planet, we cannot use the same idea as situations 
as a way of using evidence to suggest that he was here. We have to kind of infer from situations and events from history to kind of put them in the same vein. Unfortunately, we have almost no comparable situations to something like feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes, or walking on water, or healing blindness and paralysis by speaking words. All these examples of miracles, although are highly contested and confusing, are situations in which something very clearly did happen, and we have to come up with a logical and useful explanation for explaining the event. And there is situations. What about experiences? I know it feels like I'm splitting hairs with both witnesses, situations, and experiences, since they are incredibly closely related. But bear with me for a moment. There are slight nuances between witnesses, situations, and experiences that are worth noting. A witness, as I mentioned earlier, is a person who tells a story about an event. An experience is more broad than a single witness, as though it kind of tells us that something happened to which we can go and look for evidence. Some experiences can be traced back to tangible situations and details which help to, to validate the experience. Another form of experiences are, are common experiences shared by a group of people. Experiences related Experiences relate more to tangible, definable, and concrete situations than a witness and are more impersonal than a witness. Validating experiences is a challenge. Experiences that relate to a common event or tangible data are much easier to validate than such as a beautiful sunset or the presence of a mountain, stream, or animal. Cognitive experiences are challenging if not impossible to validate. These types of experiences include emotions, thoughts, expressions, wishes, hopes, dreams, aspirations, ideas, ideologies, and imaginations. Many of these cognitive experiences are largely unhelpful or unusable for evidence for anything, for much of anything at all. I cannot use someone's hope or imagination to prove a point or to help a case. Yet these cognitive experiences do help us on one level. They remind us of the intangible experiences of life that we cannot prove. These intangible experiences include love and beauty, both of which we accept as real but cannot prove. The more important element of experience for the purposes of this question are those experiences that hold some level of validation, which means we can validate the claim the person is making. The ability to validate a claim gives us evidence for something, which is largely personal, in a broader context than the personal experience itself. For instance, if a person saw a woolly mammoth in North America, and then we saw tracks that are consistent with a woolly mammoth, we are part of the way to validating the, their experience. For this reason, I have separated witness from experience. Whereas the witness's focus is on testimony, the experience's focuses on the details of the event. Experiences of God are largely difficult to validate. Although we have the experiences of countless people who claim to have encountered God, the evidence is largely on the witness level. Now we are back to at the original conundrum of how many personal experiences does it take for a person to make a claim that is, isn't truly a personal experience, but a collective experience beyond the individual. Other forms of experience include evidence of things not human, such as nature and beauty. Although beauty is a human expression that we can link to a concrete reality, 
the nature of beauty tends itself to something that is beyond humanity. This idea is largely contested in sociological and philosophical work, who suggest that beauty is cognitive and not concrete. Conversely, nature as a phenomenon outside of humanity's, crea humanity's creative scope evidences a common experience of something that is beyond humanity's capability to create, which gives experience to s evidence to something beyond us from our experiences. The idea of experience as evidence will largely be too hard for us to use as evidence for God, but is limited to suggestive of something else, and that is largely where we have to leave the idea of experiences. This next one is complicated, and give me some time to explain it, and that is reasoned arguments. This is very different from the last three, in that reasoned arguments are not a personal experience or related to the person at all. Reasoned arguments are strictly from logic alone, and therefore I am sug not suggesting that we can merely argue as evidence for God, such as, let's have a debate, and the winner of the debate is the reality of the we experience. Neither do I suggest that any particular argument is sufficient. Arguments that hold validity are useful for evidence are those that with sound reason and use logic to reach a conclusion. For instance, the argument that God exists because I have encountered him is fallacious or erroneous in its reasoning because it suggests that I can appeal to myself as the authority for this argument, and that's not a logical argument. Similarly, arguing that since no one can disprove God's existence, that he must exist, is also faulty logic in that it suggests that ignorance of the details proves the conclusion. Even the argument that since many have believed, therefore God must exist, is an appeal to an authority of many, as opposed to reason itself. The ultimate problem in using reasoned arguments as proof of God's existence is that they will always be suggestive of God's existence, since we cannot prove his existence. Just as the argument that there must be a first cause to set all the other causes in motion is a reasoned argument. For instance, we see that there is causal relationships. One thing caused another. I pushed the rock, the rock moved. I pushed the rock, the rock moved into a car and caused the car to be damaged. Those are causal relationships. Since everything is caused by something else, and we can't go back infinitely to some, like, infinite loop of regressions where nothing really caused anything, then there must be something that caused the first thing to be caused the first thing to move that set everything else into motion. That thing has to be a cause of itself, not from something else, but in itself. And therefore, the argument of cause is a reasoned argument, and a reasonable argument that leads to the conclusion that there must be a first cause, to which we call God. But even this argument is only suggestive of God. It doesn't prove it. It just says that given this particular logical train of thought, there must be a first cause. That's it. That's where it leaves it. So reasoned arguments help us on some level and hinder us on others. Reasoned arguments get us outside of ourselves far enough that we're now talking about something that we can all discuss and debate independent of experiences, witnesses, tangible evidence kinds of things, and allow us to debate on the level of reason. It also gives us the sense that it's not just me anymore, but there's something more grand than humanity itself that allows us to speak on different levels. And that's the power of reasoned arguments. It's not just personal. The last one is experiments. 
Experiments are the task of setting up a hypothesis and designing an experiment to validate it. The process of experimentation needs to meet the following criteria. Measurable data, controlled variables, and repeatability. For example, if I wanted to determine whether a particular cancer-fighting drug worked, I would set up an experiment with cancer patients who both took the drug and didn't take the drug. After a certain amount of time, I would evaluate the effectiveness of the drug on fighting cancer. Using the data collected, I would compare the patients who took the drug to those who didn't, and I would make look for correlations. In order to further validate my claim, I would repeat the same experiment again with another set of patients. Experimentation does not work when building evidence for God. Miracles, the most sought-after evidence we have, cannot be repeated to test a result. They can't. They're random, almost. Human experiences, both metaphysical and normal, witness accounts, and even experiences of God do not have any level of repeatability. We can't, like, have someone's experience and make them repeat it. Pray again. Let's see if it works. Experience that again. Let's see what happens. It just doesn't work that way. There is no way we can repeat any experience of God or any uh, way that God has interacted with us in such a way that we can now make it into experiment. In this way, experimentation has no way of helping us build evidence for God. Now that we've discussed the four main types of evidence that I use so far, witnessing, reasoned arguments, experiments, and experiences, I want to talk about a totally new type of thing that's almost like a tangent to it, but really important for looking at the power of this question. Is there any evidence that God or Jesus? And that is the difference between evidence versus proving. There's no more central issue in this particular discussion than the difference between evidence and proving. So evidence is finding data to support a claim. That's all evidence is. Proving is making a conclusion about a claim. Until this point, I focused exclusively on evidence, fact or situation-based information. In order for you to understand this choice and the argument that follows, I want to go on this tangent to really look at the power of proving and the power of evidence. When someone makes a claim, the next step is always to validate the claim. After undergoing the process of understanding both the claim and its implication, the person who wants to prove the claim needs to find evidence that supports the claim. The different forms of evidence explained above all have their advantages and disadvantages for supporting that particular claim. Ultimately, any evidence merely supports the claim. Each piece of evidence on its own is validated and then used to support for that claim. The amount of supporting evidence helps us in the power of proving but proving a claim requires additional steps. The difference between the supporting evidence and the actual act of proving is when someone sets a threshold to which they want to say, at this point, the claim is considered valid. After I've reached a certain threshold amount of evidence, I will claim this is true. Or there's an evidence to suggest that this actually happened. All those things are part of it. Now, it's, it's difficult for us to understand this whole idea of thresholds, because for the most part, a lot of what we do in life is largely proven and uncontested. For example, I exist. I don't really try to prove that, neither do I need to set a very high threshold. I'm largely going to accept the fact that I exist. Also, you're going to accept the fact that I am speaking to you, and it's not some computer voice or some computer reenactment that's speaking to you. 
largely you're going to believe that there is a person who is speaking to you through this podcast. We also don't really contest the fact that the sun comes up every morning or that there is air to breathe. We just largely accept it and move on. These things are all examples of things that we've set a very low threshold because they just always work. For other things that are much more controversial, we set the thresholds much higher, and each person will set a threshold kind of largely where they want it. Some people claim that that threshold is set on on our own, that we choose where it's at. Others say that we don't have a choice. The threshold is set for us, and we don't have a claim in that. That's a little bit more complicated than I want to get into for the moment, but I do want to focus a little bit more on the idea of threshold and proving. Believe it or not, in the scientific realm and the statistical realm, this is highly important, in that each discipline of the sciences has set a threshold for when they declare a specific set of data to be valid that it supports the claim of the hypothesis. And this is called the p-value. So after a researcher has conducted an experiment and gathered all the data they want, they then show a relationship between the data, and then they use statistical analysis to indicate whether there truly is a relationship in the data. After the statistical analysis is finished, it'll give them what's called a p-value. The p-value is the probability in which that data is just completely random. That there is no relationship at all. The relationship that the person thinks they have is really just random. The p-value is set between 0 and 1. 1 being 100%. So if you get a p-value of 1, it means your data is completely random. The lower the p-value, the higher the chance that there is a relationship between that data. For instance, a p-value of 0.5 means that there's a 50% chance that the data is completely random. 0.2 is 20%, 0.1 is 10%. So before the researcher begins any statistical analysis, they will set a threshold value. They'll say, if the p-value is 0.1 or lower, I will accept this as a valid hypothesis. There is actually a correlation in my data. If it's above 0.1, I will say, nope, this is probably more or less random. There is no relationship in my data. That threshold level is set largely by the science itself. For example, biology has a p-value of 0.05 as a threshold. Physics is normally about 0.01. Psychological experiments are usually between 0.3 and 0.5 and sociological experiments are usually between 0.4 and 0.6. The reason why this is important, that every science has set its own specific p-value, is that they can consistently across the board know what to accept and not accept, given the implications of their particular type of research, the level of data they can collect, and the power of the possible relationships in that particular field. That way, whenever any researcher goes to read a specific Uh, report, they know what they are reading and they can assess, given the standard across the board, how they want to validate or understand that particular experiment. This idea of p-values and how the scientific and statistical realm function help us understand our own levels of threshold. Yes, with God, we can't set a p-value because we can't experiment on him. 
but we all have our own individual levels to which we'll expect, accept certain information. For instance, if it's our best friend who we've trusted forever, then they tell us something, we'll probably largely just accept it with whatever they tell us. But if it's someone that we don't like or someone who's known to be a liar, we probably will discredit or dismiss whatever that person says. The same thing works with evidence for God. We all have a certain threshold. We all have some idea of what it would take for me to believe that God exists, to prove it on my own. And that's why this is so important and so powerful, that even if there is evidence, the evidence might not help an individual in believing. The evidence may be largely hindrance to that person. And so, as we come to the kind of the core of this question, we have to keep these ideas of thresholds and proving and evidence in our mind as we answer this question. So now for the big unfold, what is the answer to this question? Is there any evidence for God or Jesus? The answer is yes. There is evidence for God and Jesus. That's not really what most people are struggling with, though. The point where most people are hindered is the question of, can I prove the existence of God or Jesus? And the answer to that question is no. I can't prove it to you. I can't make such great arguments or anything that would so overwhelmingly prove it that everyone would largely accept that particular piece of evidence. It's just not going to happen. People will have to prove it and validate it on their own. But that being said, witness accounts are powerful in understanding whether there's evidence. Witnesses are evidence. Are they sufficient evidence? That's up for the person to decide. Is there, is there reasonable arguments to suggest that God exists? Yes, there are. They are reasonable. They, are con they conform to reason. Are they the end-all, be-all that proves everything? No. Do people have experiences of God? Absolutely. At least that's what they claim. And since we can't refute their claim, neither can we fully validate it, we have to at least keep it in mind that this particular type of evidence may lead us to more evidence or more experiences or more things to which then we can start to validate or, or uh, explore more as we get this more evidence. So the last thing I want to do, since we have more or less answered the question, is one last caveat to this question. And it's a segue into two very similar issues that help broaden and nuance this topic just slightly more. And these are the topics of love and faith. It's amazing to me that out of all the things in the world, love is largely proven and tested as an idea that, although we cannot prove it, widely everyone accepts. We have no experimentation for love. You can't, like, manipulate someone and make them love and then not love, or love something and then force them to love something else. It doesn't really work that way. Love is largely an emotional response. It's our way of feeling. It's also our way of giving. Love is a complicated, confusing word, term, idea, concept, whatever you wish to call it. And in that way, because love is an emotional response, its way of proving and its way of gaining evidence for is much like evidence for God or Jesus. You can say someone's in love with another person, but if you don't ask that person, or they don't exhibit any signs of it, you have no way to validate that claim. Even the person may feel like they're in love, but that could be infatuation, that could be any number of things. How do we prove 
love or even the very existence of love itself, we're stuck. And if you don't believe me on this stuff, watch soap operas. There are great examples of how people are in love and out of love and figuring out love and complicated with love and all these different things that are mixed up in the drama of this event. Love is an example in which we have no proof for it, yet we widely accept its existence, and yet nobody seems to contest it. It's odd. Faith is very similar as a concept to love. Everyone believes in something. We all have something which we largely accept and believe without a whole lot of evidence or maybe with some evidence or maybe with a lot of evidence. These things include there is nothing, the atheistic argument. God exists, the theistic argument. Everything is entirely one, the Buddhist argument. The world we have is all that there is. We are in a giant computer simulation, you know, the matrix. Some people believe some of these, none of these, all of these, we all have something we believe in. And so therefore, faith is very much so synonymous with beliefs. And they are equally provable in that they cannot be proven. Beliefs either conform better or worse to the experience of the people in the world. That means that a specific belief either fits with the experiences we have and the witnesses we have, or they don't. They either help us in our understanding of the world or they hinder it. And so if we're looking at beliefs as more of a logical framework, beliefs on their own, what they are doing is helping us understand the world. And so if we want to get the most true belief, we should find the one that conforms the most to things of the world or conforms most to our experience or conforms most to humanity, whatever that may be. But ultimately, and I argue this, Reason, the ultimate reason why people, why we cannot prove the existence of God is that if we could prove, meaning that all people would automatically accept it as true and everyone would know of God, that belief in God would have as much impact on our lives as the air we breathe. Boring, not very exciting, largely taken for granted. Faith causes us, much like love, to a relationship and relationship needs to be proven for an individual, and then it becomes something real. So faith is so vitally important for the whole concept of God that it's almost weird to even suggest that God can be proven. For why would we need to prove something in which we wouldn't want to? Which leads to my final conclusion out of all of this, yes, we do have evidence to suggest that God and Jesus both exist, but we cannot prove the existence of either. It's largely a matter of faith. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at C. Williams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 